Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Monday, March 6th readings of the Boulder Daily Camera and Longmont Times Call. My name is Anita Head. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Biodiversity Treating, Treaty, Nations Reach Accord to Protect Marine Life by Christopher Larson and Patrick Whittle. Jefferson County, Fire Mitigation Plan Anchors Residents by John Aguilar. State Laws, Restoring Rights for Felons, a Rare Bipartisan Voting Change. Biodiversity Treaty, Nations Reach Accord to Protect Marine Life by Christina Larson and Patrick Whittle, the Associated Press, Washington. For the first time, United Nations members have agreed on a unified treaty to protect biodiversity in the high seas. Representing a turning point for vast stretches of the planet, where conservation has previously been hampered by a confusing patchwork of laws. The UN Convention on the Law of the Sea came into force in 1994 before marine biodiversity was a well-established concept. The treaty agreement concluded two weeks of talks in New York. An updated framework to protect marine life in the regions outside national boundary waters, known as the high seas, had been in discussions for more than 20 years, but previous efforts to reach an agreement had repeatedly stalled. The Unified Agreement Treaty, which applies to nearly half the planet's surface, was reached late Saturday. We only really have two major global commons, the atmosphere and the oceans, said Georgetown marine biologist Rebecca Helm. While the oceans may draw less attention, protecting this half of Earth's surface is absolutely critical to the health of our planet. Nicola Clark, an oceans expert at the Pew Charitable Trust, who observed the talks in New York, called the long-awaited treaty text a once-in-a-generation opportunity to protect the oceans, a major win for biodiversity. The treaty will create a new body to manage conservation of ocean life and establish marine protected areas in the high seas. And Clark said that's critical to achieve the UN Biodiversity Conference's recent pledge to protect 30% of the planet's waters, as well as its land, for conservation. Treaty negotiations initially were anticipated to conclude Friday, but stretched through the night and deep into Saturday. The crafting of the treaty, which at times looked in jeopardy, represents a historic and overwhelming success for international marine protection, said Steffi Lemke, Germany's environment minister. For the first time, we are getting a binding agreement for the high seas, which until now have hardly been protected. Comprehensive protection of endangered species and habitats is now finally possible on more than 40% of the Earth's surface. The treaty also establishes ground rules for conducting environmental impact assessments for commercial activities in the ocean. It means all activities planned for the high seas need to be looked at, though not all will go through a full assessment, said Jessica Battle, an oceans governance expert at the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Several marine species, including dolphins, whales, sea turtles, and many fish, make long annual migrations crossing national borders and the high seas. Efforts to protect them, along with human communities that rely on fishing or tourism related to marine life, have long proven difficult for international governing bodies. This treaty will help to knit together the different regional treaties to be able to address threats and concerns across species ranges, Battle said. That protection also helps coastal biodiversity and economies, said Gladys Martinez de Limos, executive director of the nonprofit Inter-American Association for Environmental Defense, focusing on environmental issues across Latin America. Governments have taken an important step that strengthens the legal protection of two-thirds of the ocean and with it, marine biodiversity and the livelihoods of coastal communities, she said. The question now is how well the ambitious treaty will be implemented. Formal adoption also remains outstanding with numerous conservationists and environmental groups vowing to watch closely. The high seas have long suffered exploitation due to commercial fishing and mining, as well as pollution from chemicals and plastics. The new agreement is about acknowledging that the ocean is not a limitless resource, and it requires global cooperation to use the ocean sustainably, Rutgers University biologist Malin Pinsky said. 
Jefferson County Fire Mitigation Plan Angers Residents by John Aguilar Evergreen Hundreds of freshly cut ponderosa logs lay stacked in rows in Elk Meadow Park, some measuring several feet in diameter and more than a century old. Not far away, wood chips and slash litter a clearing, litter a clearing where trees once stood. My initial reaction was complete shock and horror, said Teresa Fox, an evergreen resident who regularly hikes the open space properties that dot the Jefferson County high country. The mature straight trees were all logged and only scrub trees with no value for logging were left. 11 miles from Elk Meadow is Flying J Ranch Park, which Fox said she can no longer visit because she is so sickened by the total devastation the logging has brought. An effort to halt the logging has gathered more than 500 signatures on a change.org website. What's upsetting Fox and other residents in the foothills is what Jefferson County calls wildfire mitigation, alongside a larger effort to maintain forest health in a drying climate. The county's natural resources supervisor, Steve Germain, said climate change is making wildfire a year-round hazard, and Jefferson County can't ignore it. It doesn't help, he said, that decades of fire suppression have helped make forests more combustible. On most days of the year, if you thin trees and keep surface fuels in check, fire danger will primarily be restricted to the ground, where emergency responders have a better chance of keeping it under control, he said. Fire didn't thin them naturally, and now we have an unhealthy number of trees, so we are doing our best with mechanical thinning treatments to mimic natural fire. Aside from Elk Meadow and Flying J Ranch, Jefferson County has been felling trees in Meyer Ranch Park and Reynolds Park. We, begin, we just began a thinning project at White Ranch Park and have plans to thin stands in other parks, especially in areas near neighborhoods, schools, and other places where human safety is a priority, Jermaine said. The county's efforts are occurring against a backdrop of a 10-year initiative by the U.S. Forest Service to prevent wildfire catastrophes by treating defined as well defined as prescribed burns or thinning up to 50 million acres. Federal planners have prioritized forests around urban areas, including Colorado's Front Range, from Fort Collins to Pueblo, designating the 3.5 million acre area as one of the West's most imperiled high-risk fire sheds. Evergreen resident Joanne Hakos, who also serves as a board member with the Evergreen Audubon chapter, said Jefferson County is targeting too many mature trees. I've seen truckloads of large old growth trees being driven away from our neighborhood parks, Hakos said. There is lots of money to be made in selling these big trees, but it irreparably damages the forest. The county, she said, is using a technique called mastication, which essentially chops up treated areas into mulch. Hakos said the practice disrupts the soil and damages roots. We know that natural fires... We know that natural fires in the past thinned the forest and led to trees of different varieties and densities, she said. We need to keep a forest that is varied in age, variety, and density to prevent wildfires. Chad Hansen, forest and fire ecologist with the John Muir Project in Big Bear Lake, California, said Jefferson County is doing everything wrong. Removing mature trees increases wildfire spread and severity, he said. When they do these logging projects under the guise of thinning, that reduces the cooling shade of the canopy. Denser forests do not burn more intensely. By removing big trees, Hansen said, more ground is exposed to Colorado's generous sunshine with desiccation or drying of grasses and ground cover the result, and the buffering effect on the wind that trees provide is reduced. It was bone-dry grasslands along with the fierce winds that fueled the Marshall Fire in 2021, whipping flames from its, the fire's point of origin along Colorado 93, all the way into Superior and Louisville, where more than a 1,000 homes were destroyed and two people died. Weather and climate are dominant in wildfires. It's about hot, dry, windy conditions, Hansen said. Removing these trees is about the dumbest thing you can do. Logging opponents point to guidance in the county's own forest health plan, which was published last year. The plan advises the county to promote larger diameter and fire-resistant trees, such as ponderosa pine. Many of the trees are clearly very old growth, Fox said. Most of what was taken was, were ponderosas. Additionally, increased fire activity is directly related to higher temperatures, and trees are responsible for carbon recapture. In a way, the remedy actually contributes to what causes more fires. 
But Germaine said it's a misnomer to call the ponderosas that are being cut old-growth trees, a term that evokes more of an emotional response. Ponderosa pine trees only begin to take on old-growth characteristics between 200 to 300 years of age, and they may live to four or 500 years, he said. Some of the trees we are cutting are large, and some are approaching 125 years in age, but none are old growth. And the notion that the county is making a windfall from timber sales resulting from the felling is simply untrue, Germain said. We hire local small business people to do most of our forest thinning. A lot of material is ground up and spread around on site because it has no market value, he said. We hold firewood sales to provide wood to local residents, and the county does not profit from any of this. Jefferson County pays contractors about $3,500 an acre for thinning, Tremaine said. It's important to keep in mind that all this wood is a result of 125-plus years of fire suppression, and it wouldn't have been here naturally, he said. For us, the main thing is that this excess wood gets removed as we return our forest stands to a safer, more natural state. State Laws, Restoring Rights for Felons, a Rare Bipartisan Voting Change, by Gary Fields, the Associated Press, Lincoln, Nebraska. T.J. King had candidates and causes to support, but couldn't vote in Nebraska's last election. An outreach specialist with the Nebraska AIDS Project, King came off probation in August after serving time for drug and theft convictions. In many states, he could have voted in November in the November general election but Nebraska requires a two-year wait after the completion of a felony sentence before someone can register. King's first chance to vote will be in the 2024 presidential election season, unless a legislative proposal introduced in January that would remove the two-year requirement passes and becomes law. That likely would change the timeline for the restoration of voting rights for King and thousands of other Nebraskans. Voting, King said in an interview, gives a little bit of your strength back and a little bit of your voice back. Being able to vote, being able to have a say in what happens in your society, in your state, is extremely important. Restoring the voting rights of former felons drew national attention after Florida lawmakers weakened a voter-approved constitutional amendment and after a new election police unit championed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis arrested 20 former felons. Several of them said they were confused by the arrest because they hadn't been allowed to register to vote. Attempts like those to discourage ex-felons from voting appeared to be an outlier among the states, even as some Republican-led states continue to restrict voting access in other ways. At least 14 states have introduced proposals this year focused on restore, restoration of voting rights, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. An Oregon proposal would allow felons to vote while incarcerated. A Tennessee bill would automatically restore voting rights once a sentence is completed, except for a small group of crimes. Texas legislation would restore voting rights to those on probation or parole. In Minnesota, Democratic Governor Tim Waltz on Friday signed a bill restoring voting rights to convicted felons as soon as they get out of prison. A bill moving through the New Mexico legislature would do the same. Restoring voting rights really is an issue where we've seen bipartisan momentum, said Patrick Berry, counsel for the democracy program at the Brennan Center. More than 4.6 million people are disenfranchised in the United States because of felony convictions, according to the Sentencing Project, which studies the issue and advocates for restoration of voting rights for former felons. Laws vary by state based on pardon requirements, payment of fines, fees and child support, and when a sentence, including probation and parole, is considered complete. The impacts fall disproportionately on people of color, especially black citizens, who account for one-third of the total disenfranchised population, while making up about 12% of the overall population. In Nebraska, nearly 18,000 people are unable to vote because of felony convictions, said the Sentencing Project's Director of Advocacy, Nicole Porter. That includes 7,072 who fall under the two-year wait requirement and are currently unable to cast a ballot. The rest have not completed their full sentences. Steve Smith of Civic Nebraska, part of a local a large coalition of groups supporting the measure said the way creates a group of taxpayers who can't choose their representatives. You're civically dead and you can't vote for the people who are levying those taxes, he said. The bill that would eliminate the weight would alter a 2005 law. Before then, felonies in Nebraska brought a lifetime voting ban in most cases. At the time, Nebraska was in step with other states. 
Now, while a few states require wait times for specific offenses or define completion of a sentence as including things such as fines and restitution, Nebraska is alone in requiring a general waiting period beyond imprisonment and release from parole or probation, said Margaret Love, co-founder and director of the Collateral Consequences Resource Center, which keeps a 50-state database on restoration of rights. The bill's author, Democratic State Senator Justin Wayne, said he was going door-to-door in his first election in 2016 and was told by would-be constituents that they could not vote. Much of the reason was confusion over the law's waiting period, he said. He has introduced bills multiple times to do away with the wait period, coming close to success in 2017 when a bill passed by the legislature but was vetoed by then-Republican Governor Pete Ricketts. Wayne, who represents parts of Omaha with strong minority populations, said reconnecting people to the voting process is integral to successful reentry. His bill advanced this past week from a committee to the full legislature. When people get out of our system, they've got to feel engaged in their community, and the number one way for a person to feel engaged in their community is to be able to vote for the leadership of that community, he said. Kathy Wilcott, a member of the University of Nebraska Board of Regents, was the lone dissenter from among the nearly 20 witnesses who spoke on Wayne's bill. Wilcott stressed she was speaking as an individual and not on behalf of the university. I do think that hopefully the waiting period reinforces the fact that voting is something very special, and hopefully that will be part of things that an individual would consider if they're tempted to break the law again, she said. Three of the witnesses with criminal records who spoke in favor of the legislation said in later interviews the waiting period is not a deterrent to future crime, but rather a barrier for those who have served their sentences. King, 51, fought addiction for years and spent five years in prison after being convicted of possessing the party drug ecstasy and theft by deception, ending probation last August. King works in the HIV-AIDS field and volunteers at various organizations, but said voting is still the most direct way to be involved and became tearful when talking about being unable to vote. I felt so helpless and help- hopeless and helpless not being able to have my voice heard in this last election, King said. There are a lot of things that were on the ballot here in Nebraska that hit home with a lot of things that I advocate for. Demetrius Gatson is among more than one hundred, more than 10,000 people in Nebraska who has no right to vote because they haven't completed their sentences. Because of her probation, she will have to wait until 2030 to vote. Since her 2018 release, she has obtained graduate degrees and served in a variety of volunteer roles. Now 48, Gatson has set up her own nonprofit and is an executive director of Q. U-E-E-N-S Butterfly House, a safe house for women trying to re-enter society. For the people she works with, being able to register to vote provides a sense of acceptance, she said, especially when there are so many barriers on which they can, on where they can live, jobs they can work, and who they can associate with, she said. Gadsden said there are critical issues she cares about, including education and criminal justice, but said, I don't have a say in anything that goes on in my country because I'm a felon. Stephen Scott, 33, was paroled in 2015 after serving more than four years on assault and other charges. After his release, he was rejected repeatedly for apartments, got a job only because his boss knew him and had his pursuit of an advanced degree derailed after his record came to light. He is now married with two children and owns his own business, a physical rehabilitation and athletic coaching center. He has also regained voting rights and cast ballots for Republican candidates in his first elections including 2020. He sees the two-year waiting period as one link in a long chain of barriers for those trying to re-enter society. You can't harm society by voting, he said. You can only help it. Week ahead. Superior trustees to hold work session. The Superior Board of Trustees meet at 6 p.m. this evening, both in person at Town Hall 124 East Coal Creek Drive and online for a work session to discuss, among items, the town's capital improvement program, materials allowed for fences in the town limit, short-term rentals, and town hall expansion. The public may watch online by going to superiorcolorado.gov. Lafayette Council eyes ordinance on retail sale of dogs and cats. The Lafayette City Council meets in person and virtually at 5.30 p.m. Tuesday at the City Hall Council Chambers, 1290 South Public Road to draft an ordinance prohibiting the retail sale of dogs and cats. 
Participants may attend in person or watch the meeting online at cityoflafayette.com forward slash 627 forward slash streaming dash video or on Comcast Channel 8. Listen to the meeting by calling 877-853-5247. Eldora Play Forever series continues. The Play Forever Wednesday series continues at Eldora Resort just west of Netherland on Wednesday with $5 from every lift ticket sold going to a local nonprofit. The week's weather forecast suggests there should be some fresh powder. Boulder Council considers tribal relations more. The Boulder City Council will meet virtually at 6 p.m. Thursday to discuss tribal relations and modifications to the city's occupancy regulations as part of a regular study session. People can also tune in virtually at bit.ly forward slash 3SARQTB. Public Utilities Commission. Excel must file fees for solar hookups. Order comes after rules requiring changes be submitted. Deluge of, deluge of complaints about delays by Judith Kohler. State regulators have ordered Excel Energy Colorado to file fees and timelines for connecting residential and business solar systems to the electric grid. The order comes more than a year after regulators approved rules requiring utilities to submit the fees and after a deluge of complaints about delays by Excel. Excel Energy's handling of applications from property owners and solar installers has come under scrutiny after complaints that waits for service stretched into several months. For the last several months, solar companies and customers said they faced long delays and few answers after investing in equipment and work. The Colorado Public Utilities Commission issued the order February 28th and gave Excel 45 days to file the fees and timelines along with provisions for customer refunds if the deadlines are not met. In a February PUC meeting, Commission Member Megan Gilman said the order would provide a path forward on addressing the unprecedented number of complaints about Excel's action on connecting solar systems. It's clear there needs to be more structure, there needs to be tighter oversight, and there needs to be financial incentives and penalties at play here because this is just plain not going well as it currently is, Gilman said. Excel Energy is an outlier in terms of the number of complaints about delays and the process overall, said Ron Davis, a PUC staffer. He said Black Hills Energy, which like Excel is an investor-owned utility, filed its fees and information about hooking up smaller solar projects after the PUC approved the requirements to do so in July 2021. To my knowledge, Excel has no interconnection tariff on file with the commission, Davis said. Excel Energy has received input on proposed fees in anticipation of the filing of fees, company spokeswoman Michelle Aguayo said in an email. The previously approved rules didn't include a deadline, she said. Rooftop solar is a customer option that plays a meaningful role in reducing carbon emissions in Colorado, and we've been a strong partner. We've safely connected more than 85,000 customer solar systems to our grid in Colorado, Aguayo said. Excel Energy acknowledged having a backlog of more than 4,000 interconnection applications in January. The company attributed holdups to a flurry of applications in 2022 due to increased federal and state tax incentives. It also blamed delays on incomplete or inaccurate applications. Aguayo said Excel has cleared more than 90% of the backlog and expects to eliminate it early this month. State regulations require that a portion of the electricity sold by investor-owned utilities comes from renewable energy sources. The requirements include making room on the system for a certain amount of distributed generation, such as solar panels on homes or businesses and community solar gardens. Mike Kruger, president and CEO of the trade group Colorado Solar and Storage Association, said several solar installers have said they are seeing more applications approved. We'll need to see their official proof, but I believe they have the backlog back to a minimal amount, and fingers crossed, we'll not see it go back up once the spotlight is off of them, Kruger said. Kara Menzel and Idina Menzel, Loud Mouse authors, celebrate Purim Sunday at Boulder JCC. By Andrea Grajeta. A little mouse and her big voice teach kids to be brave even when it's scary. Kara Menzel and her sister, Idina Menzel, celebrated Purim at the Boulder Jewish Community Center Sunday. 
The sisters had a sing-along of the children's book they wrote together, Loud Mouse. The book, released in September, follows a mouse named Dee, who loves to sing and her brave journey in being comfortable and confident in herself. Mansell graduated from the University of Colorado, Boulder, in 1996 and was a teacher at Foothills Elementary in Boulder for over 12 years, but she now lives in Los Angeles. Menzel has played Elphaba in Wicked on Broadway and is the voice of Elsa in Frozen. Hundreds of people and their kids and dozens of little girls dressed as Elsa watched the sisters read and sing on stage. The sisters said they hope the kids learn to be confident. Sometimes being your biggest best self sometimes means taking risks and being vulnerable. And that's okay, and you should do it anyways, Menzel said in an interview. Menzel said that the book's Inspiration comes from her own experience as a little girl and discovering that she had a great voice. She said that she wanted to share her talent, but was hesitant of what that could mean. If you want to be seen and heard, you have to be ready to really be seen and heard, and that can be scary, Menzel said. Menzel said that Boulder still feels like home to her. She spent most of her adult life there, and her son currently attends CU Boulder. Menzel wanted to write a book, so she approached her sister to write the book together. Mensel is a literary specialist and has an understanding of how to use language to teach and connect. The sisters said the book incorporates bigger words for children to learn while still being exciting and engaging. Menzel made the jump for performing arts to visual and literary art for Loud Mouse. She said that the characters played are often about people with enormous power and their journey to relinquish that power to share to the world that resonate with people. She felt it was her responsibility to continue being that kind of role model. And the book is about another one of those characters, Dee. The main character in the book is based on Menzel, who learns to embrace her big voice. Menzel said she rec that recently, while cleaning her son's bedroom, she saw the book Where the Wild Things Are, and she remembered the lessons of imagination and creativity she learned from it. She also said that Charlotte's Web taught her about friendship and grief. Menzel said that Charlotte's Webb taught her that being a writer and a best friend are some of the greatest things she could be. The sisters did a sing-along of their book after a perm skit led by Leah Boonin and Caroline Salomon of the JCC. The skit told the story of Purim, with kids from the audience picked to play out the story. Boonin and Caroline said that the story of Purim follows Queen Esther, who had to hide her Judaism to ascend to the throne, who later made the risk to reveal she was Jewish in order to stop persecution of the Jewish people in her land. Boonin said that the skit is kid friendly, is a kid-friendly version of the events, but that the Book of Esther reveals a much broader story about risk, identity, and bravery. Boulder JCC Executive Director Jonathan Lev said that the 2023 is the first year Purim celebrations are big again following pandemic lockdowns. He said that last year the event was held outside. It's fun and exciting and all the families dress up. It's a time of joy and celebration, Lev said. Lev was excited to dress in a costume for Purim, he said, while dressed as the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. The Celebration Sunday also had bouncy castles and face painting for kids, as well as a chance to buy bagels, treats, and even loud mouse books. The sisters also had a book signing after their sing-along and got to talk to families face-to-face. Menzel and Menzel will also visit Meadowlark School in Erie and Flagstaff Academy in Longmont this week to talk about loud mouths. The school visits are not open to the public. US 287 by Amber Carlson. Boulder County is hosting a virtual public meeting to improve safety and mobility along US 287. Members of the public are invited to attend the meeting, which is self-guided and can be joined at any time. Participants will learn about the US-287 corridor's history and current conditions and have the opportunity to provide feedback and safe on safety and mobility concerns for the project team. The meeting will remain open through March 19th and can be accessed at boco.org forward slash 287 virtual open house. Boulder County plans to host two more public meetings at a later date. The county is seeking public feedback as part of the ongoing US-287 Vision Zero Safety and Mobility Study, which aims to address mobility needs and eliminate traffic-related deaths and serious injuries on US-287. The study will include engineering assessments and crash analysis and will seek to identify data-driven solutions to mitigating and preventing crashes 
in areas where they occur frequently. Additionally, the study will include planning for a bike path along the U.S. 287 corridor from Longmont to Broomfield. The goal is to create a safer and more accessible U.S. 287 corridor that meets the needs of all people, whether traveling by car, bike, foot, or transit, project manager Jeff Butts stated in a news release. This study will lay the foundation for achieving that goal, and we are excited to have the community's input as we move forward. Boulder County is partnering with Longmont, Erie, Lafayette, and Broomfield, as well as regional agencies such as CDOT and DRCOG for the study. We, rec- we greatly appreciate the collaboration with our municipal and agency partners, but stated in the release, it is only through the collective effort of our community that we can achieve the county's goal of zero fatal and serious injury crashes by 2035. The U.S. 287 study is expected to continue through December. More information and project updates can be found by visiting boco.org forward slash 287 planning or contacting Jeff Butts at 720-564-2754 or jbutts at bouldercounty.org. We'll now be reading some articles from the Longmont Times Call, views from the nation's press. Bloomberg, opinion on how Congress must stop, act to stop fentanyl deaths. Fentanyl has become the number one cause of death for American adults under 50. It's an indiscriminate killer claiming the lives of quiet teens and young parents, Wall Street traders and celebrities alike. The synthetic opioid is now so cheap and ubiquitous that buying it has been compared to ordering a pizza. While addressing the fentanyl crisis has strong bipartisan support, lawmakers are currently getting pulled into too many directions. They need to establish priorities. Fentanyl was developed in 1959 as a painkiller primarily for cancer treatment. It's up to 100 times more potent than morphine, and just a few milligrams can be deadly. Dealers can make large profits selling pills with infinitesimally small amounts of the substance at just 4 or $5 each. Fentanyl is also getting cut into street drugs such as cocaine, heroin, and illicit painkillers. Last year, two Ohio college students died after taking what they thought was a generic form of Adderall, a prescription stimulant popular among exam takers. Congress, to its credit, has held multiple hearings on fentanyl's toll, yet confronting this challenge will be an immensely complex and often controversial undertaking. It will, among other things, require multi-year efforts to step up border surveillance, bolster law enforcement, work with foreign partners to disrupt supplies, and educate the public to curb demand. One first step should be uncontroversial, however, preventing needless deaths. In particular, Congress should prioritize making naloxone a life-saving medication that can reverse an overdose more widely available. Last month, a government advisory committee voted unanimously to recommend that naloxone nasal spray be sold over-the-counter a strong indicator that the Food and Drug Administration will allow it. But naloxone, commonly sold as Narcan, isn't cheap, even with insurance. A two-pack of 4 milligram spray, typically enough to reverse one overdose, costs between $35 and $65. That figure can hit 250 or more for the uninsured. The government can help. Congress should further subsidize bulk purchases by schools, community centers, hospitals, and other local institutions, thereby broadening free in-person distribution. Some cities and states offer free naloxone by mail. At the state level, laws governing who can dispense or administer naloxone vary widely. For example, many states allow schools to stock naloxone, but too few offer training for staff and students. Ensuring that enough medicine is available and can be properly administered should be a top priority. President Joe Biden's administration has taken several steps to expand access to naloxone from distributing kits to help state, helping states draft legislation governing its use. But it, too, can do more. Biden should start by re-elevating the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy to a cabinet position. Such status would hold federal drug control programs accountable, ensure drug policy remains a top budget priority, and facilitate greater coordination across agencies, which will become critical as new drugs like Xylazine, enter the supply. As part of the White House's broader response, Biden should also ensure funding flows through the 
to equip law enforcement and other emergency workers with naloxone as a matter of routine. Naloxone won't solve America's fentanyl crisis. It will save lives. That's a good start. The St. Louis Dispatch on how Haley's test idea is a non-starter, but America's aged leadership is an issue. How convenient that the presidential hopeful Nikki Haley proposed mental competency test for politicians would kick in at age, six, at age 75, just below the age of her only other announced Republican opponent, former President Donald Trump, and a few years below incumbent Democratic, Democrat Joe Biden. Since the Constitution already specifies age criteria for federal elective office, minimum of 25 years for the House, 30 years for the Senate, and 35 years for the presidency, but with no upper limit for any of them, Haley's idea presumably couldn't go into effect without a constitutional amendment. In any case, the transparently self-serving proposal by Haley, 51, reportedly has already backfired with older Republican voters, a key block in the GOP. If this is an example of her political instincts on the national stage, she shouldn't expect to last long. Still, Haley has raised an issue that voters in both parties may soon have to confront. Biden, 80, is already the oldest president in U.S. history. If, as expected, he runs for re-election, he would be 86 by the end of the hypothetical second term. While there, have been no medical, there has been no medical prognosis indicating loss of cognitive ability, no one who watches Biden's speeches today could honestly deny his age is already taking a toll. And Trump's erratic behavior seems only to be getting worse with age. There's much to be said for the benefits of experience, but it does seem odd that the ages of so many in the national political power structure are double or more of the nation's median age, 38, according to the census. More than one-sixth of the U.S. Senate is 75 or older. The oldest, Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, 89, plans to retire in January 2025. The second oldest, Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, also 89, has filed for re-election in 2028. As for Trump, 76, we would argue that the demonstrable concerns about his psychological stability and temperament long predate any concerns about his age, but he too will have crossed into his 80s by the end of the next presidential term, and it's not like those additional years are going to make him more fit for office. St. Vrain Valley Voices, Down the Rabbit Hole of Ethics in Wonderland by Ralph Josephson. There is a subtle dest destination between ethics and morality. Morality provides guidance in making choices conforming to prevailing mores. Ethics entails special relationships establishing responsibilities to others. Ethics was historically associated with the learned professions of law, medicine, and theology. It imposes a fiduciary duty to serve the best interests of others. This is particularly compelling when there is a disparity of expertise, resources, a dependency, or vulnerability. Elected public officials are subject to a high, to a high ethical standard. The ethical integrity of elected public officials is integral to the representative system of government. Like love and marriage, ethics and democracy go together like a horse and carriage. You can't have one without the other. A breach of ethics by an elected public official is the adulterous handmaiden of autocracy. As does spandex, ethics conforms to the contours of the times. It is ill-advised to willy-nilly condemn the ethics of yesteryear. Bygone ethics provides insight to make wiser and more prudent choices in the present. The ethics imposed on elected officials has undergone substantive changes over the past decade. The practice of influence peddling, business profiteering, nepotism, graft, machine politics, sexual harassment, and promiscuity was ignored not too long ago or accepted as a privilege of office. The culture of ethics has come a long way, yet has not reached the promised land and never will. Some elected officials in Wonderland continue to slither down the rabbit hole of ethical ill repute. Elected officials must conform to the highest standards of ethics applicable to their official responsibilities and in furtherance of the best interest of their constituents. They must avoid even the appearance of impropriety. Politic public confidence should be indispensable to public trust. Should a governing body establish an ethics committee here in the committee 
to hear complaints against its members, the appearance of impropriety in either the initial formation or continuing operation of the committee is counterproductive. The following considerations are suggested. One, its members should include citizens broadly representative of the constituency served to avoid the appearance of bias or partiality as to discourage internecine conflicts. A member of the governing body should be appointed as a liaison to the governing body. However, must not participate as a voting member under the admonition, judge not lest ye not be judged. Two, citizens wishing to volunteer to serve on the committee should submit an application to the governing body outlining their qualifications, credentials, and reasons for wishing to serve. Applicants should appear in public forums to make a presentation subject to pertinent questions from the governing body and the public. The governing body thereafter must appoint committee members whose terms may be staggered and whose numbers may be augmented by alternatives to serve in the absence or resignation of a regular committee member. In lieu of a committee, an impartial professional mediator, well-versed in government ethics, could be appointed to hear and determine ethics complaints. Three, the committee should meet at least annually to provide the governing body with a status report and to make any recommendations it would convene It would convene when an ethics complaint is lodged. As a threshold matter, the committee must determine whether a complaint has merit on its face to proceed. Considerations on the merits of a complaint should afford minimum fairness, including notice of the ethics violation, alleged the right to deny violation, or present positions of extenuation, justification, or mitigation. Four, independent counsel should be engaged to initially assist the committee to develop guidelines, including meeting protocols, rules of procedure, and scope of unethical behavior within the committee's assigned purview. Counsel should attend hearings to provide advice to the committee. This would permit the committee to adjourn in order to confer with counsel on legal issues under the law lawyer-client privilege. Example, whether an ongoing criminal investigation would be compromised or whether disclosure would violate an asserted legal privilege. Final determination of the committee are not for the purpose of initiating a criminal charge. Bloody Sunday Anniversary. In Selma, Biden says right to vote remains under assault. By Amir Madhani and Kim Chandler, the Associated Press, Selma, Alabama. President Joe Biden used the searing memories of Selma's Bloody Sunday to recommit to a cornerstone of democracy lionizing a seminal moment from the civil rights movement at a time when he has been unable to push enhanced voting protections through Congress and a conservative Supreme Court has undermined a landmark voting law. Selma is a reckoning. The right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible, Biden told a crowd of several thousand people, seated on one side of the historic Edmund Pettus Bridge, named for a reputed Ku Klux Klan leader. This fundamental right remains under assault. The conservative Supreme Court has gutted the Voting Rights Act over the years. Since the 2020 election, a wave of states and dozens and dozens of anti-voting laws fueled by the big lie and the election deniers now elected to office, he said. As a candidate in 2020, Biden promised to pursue sweeping legislation to bolster protection of voting rights. Two years ago, his 2021 legislation, named after civil rights leader John Lewis, the late Georgia congressman, included provisions to restrict partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts, strike down hurdles to voting, and bring transparency to a campaign finance system that allows wealthy donors to bankroll political causes anonymously. It passed the then-Democratic-controlled House, but failed to draw the 60 votes needed to advance in a Senate under control by Biden's party. With Republicans now running up the House, passage of such legislation is highly unlikely. We know we must get the votes in Congress, Biden said, but there seems no viable path right now. The visit to Selma was a chance for Biden to speak directly to the current generation of civil rights activists. Many feel let down because of the lack of progress on voting rights, and they are eager to see his administration keep the issue in the spotlight. Few moments have had as lasting importance to the civil rights movement as what happened on March 7, 1965 in Selma and in the weeks that followed. 
some 600 peaceful demonstrators led by Lewis and fellow activist Hosea Williams had gathered that day just weeks after the fatal shooting of a young black man, Jimmy Lee Jackson, by an Alabama trooper. Lewis and the others were brutally, brutally beaten by Alabama troopers and sheriff's deputies as they tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge at the start of what was supposed to be a 54-mile walk to the state capitol in Montgomery and as part of a larger effort to register black voters in the South. Two years ago on the anniversary, Biden issued an executive order directing federal agencies to expand access to voter registration called on the heads of agencies to come up with plans to give federal employees time off to vote or volunteer as nonpartisan poll workers and more. But many federal agencies are lagging in meeting the voting registration provision of Biden's order, according to a report published Thursday by the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Rochat, can you see? Recent dispersal shakes up life. Reality has been shaken. Okay, I know that's nothing new. After all, we're still grappling with an ever-shifting pandemic. UFOs and artificially intelligent chatbots have made this year's headlines look like a science fiction blockbuster. And the Broncos haven't been to the playoffs since 2015. But this is big. Missy's purse has left the storyline. A sign of the apocalypse indeed. You may be new here. If so, suffice it to say that for our disabled ward, Missy, my age physically, but my younger inside, a big red purse has been her constant companion since before Heather and I were married. It's a pairing on the level of Han Solo and Chewbacca, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, or even Taylor Swift and breakup songs. That serious. But the world shifted on its axis a couple of months ago when a weekend cleanup uncovered an ancient treasure, a forgotten bottle of pop beads, a little larger than a football. We dusted it off, passed it over, figuring the rediscovery would fill a quiet afternoon. Click. That bottle of beads has become Missy's new sidekick. At any given moment, her hands are likely to be busily screwing the lid on or off, or at least attempting to, and then quietly assembling and breaking down a new string of beads. Her need to fidget and her love of arts and crafts seems to found, have found its natural crossroads. Pop, pop, pop. It has its advantages. The old purses attracted material like a black hole. Stuffed animals, small books, acres of Kleenex, and the proverbial partridge in a pear tree, eventually reaching a level of density that weighed down her shoulder and wore out the strap. Any rumors that we occasionally help the strap along will be officially denied at the next press conference. Missy's new friend is a lot lighter, even if it does sometimes need an official Sherpa to carry it up and down the stairs for her while she holds on to the banister. For a while, I kept looking for the purse returned to make a reappearance, chosen from among the many in her closet. Missy's habits tend to set themselves pretty firmly after all. But this seems to be a lasting shift, for now anyway. A contradiction? Not really. All lasting things have a way of being temporary, depending on where you set the scale. But it always shakes us a little, doesn't it? Maybe even more than a little. Sometimes it's just an annoyance, like a style that shifted or a tech that moved on. I have a cabinet full of VHS tapes. What do you mean I can't find a VCR anymore? Other times it touches us a little more deeply. New discoveries for better or for worse about a friend we thought we knew. Changes in work or in life or in the world that force us to redefine who we are. We grapple with unexpected concepts, including one that should not surprise any of us, that normal is just what we're used to. And that's a very, very fragile thing indeed. That doesn't mean we can't try to preserve the things worth keeping, but it does mean we can't set our feet in concrete. However appealing consistency may sound, and I'm right there with you, we have to be ready to adapt. Kids grow up, worlds change, and yes, even purses come and go. Funny thing about pop beads, there's always a new way to assemble them. No matter what pieces happen to come to your hand, maybe Missy is on to something. Surprise title run is complete. Las Vegas. In a tournament marked by upsets, it was fitting that Washington State hoisted the championship trophy. The seventh-seeded Cougars completed the most improbable title run in Pac-12 women's basketball history on Sunday, upsetting fifth-seeded UCLA 65-61 in the championship game at Michelob Ultra Arena. 
Charlize Legere Walker scored 23 points in the final and was named the tournament's most outstanding player after helping Washington State 23-10 and 10, become the lowest seed to win the title in the 22-year history of the Pac-12-10 tournament. Previously, the lowest seed to win was USC as a number five seed in 2014. This was the first Pac-12 title for Washington State in any women's sport. Starting out this season, I don't think anybody would have thought we would be in this position, Legere Walker said on the Pac-12 Network postgame show. Yes, we have experience in players coming back, but you look at rosters on other teams and you look at the star power they have and the talent coming in, and I don't think anybody thought that we could, one, get to the championship and also take it out. This moment right now is just so surreal for me. WSU, which eliminated third-seeded Colorado in Friday's semifinals, was the lowest seed ever to even reach the finals. The Cougars went 4-0 this week after going 3-8 in the previous eight Pac-12 tournaments combined. Throughout the week, there was a tournament record seven upsets by seed. Three of those were delivered by the Cougars, who beat number two seed Utah and number three Colorado before taking out the Bruins 25-9. The unranked Cougars defeated three consecutive Associated Press top 25 teams number three Utah, number 20 CU, and number 19 UCLA for the first time in program history. Despite a top 20 ranking, UCLA was a surprise finalist as well. The Bruins, who needed, which needed overtime to get past last place Arizona State in the first round, upset four-seeded Arizona on Thursday before rallying to stun top-seeded Stanford on Friday. On Sunday, neither team led by more than eight points. Washington State led throughout the fourth, but UCLA pulled within 63-61 on a pair of Kiki Rice free throws with 22 seconds to play. The Cougars sealed the win when Tara Wallach went one for two from the free throw line with five seconds to play. In addition to Legere Walker's 23 points, Washington State got another big game out of Bella Mercatati, who had 21 points. During the tournament, Legere Walker averaged 19 points for 4.8 4.8 rebounds and 3.0 assists per game. Mercatati joined Legere Walker on the all-tournament team after averaging 16.3 points and 7.3 rebounds. Thank you for joining us for the Monday readings of the Boulder Daily Camera and Longmont Times Call. My name is Anita Head. AINC programming is made possible in part by the generous donations from the Joslin Charitable Trust. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.